This is Flowers and Crowns, a podcast where we celebrate cultural icons, community leaders, creative pioneers, and give them their flowers. I want for us to get to the place where everyone receive the great health care that they deserve. Flowers and Crowns is an opportunity for us to give credit where credit is due. I have to be braver than I believe, and I have to be stronger than I seem, and I have to be smarter than I think I am, because I have to beat this thing. This season of Flowers and Crowns, we're focusing on and taking a deep dive into everything health and wellness in our communities. We'll uncover histories and stories that help us fully appreciate each Flowers and Crowns recipient. I'm Brian Lattimore, and this is Flowers and Crowns. Dame Vivian Hunt, simply put, is a titan. She's an alumna of Harvard College and received her MBA from Harvard Business School. She's also been awarded an honorary doctorate of law from the University of Warwick, an honorary doctorate from the University of York, and an honorary fellowship from University College London. She was previously named as one of the top 10 most influential black people in Britain by the Powerless Foundation, and the Financial Times identified her both as one of the European women to watch and one of the 30 most influential people in the city of London. She previously led McKinsey and Company's life sciences practice in EMEA and advised a diverse range of corporate, public, and third sector clients on topics of performance improvement, productivity growth, and leadership. She served on McKinsey's Global Board of Directors, its Values Committee, and several personnel committees. In 2018, she was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for Services to the Economy and Women in Business. With this season's focus on Black health and wellness, I felt Vivian's experiences and intersectionalities of the space she's inhabited and identifies with lend to a potentially unique definition of health and wellness. As someone who personifies grace, elegance, determination, even dare I say, success itself, and has been elevated to a status that could be viewed as intangible, it's important to remember that Vivian is human, and her definition of what health and wellness mean to her wasn't anything inconceivable. It was simply human. You know, your health and wellness sometimes first starts with your individual self, and in a world where you know you observe how um, hardworking, industrious, other-oriented, self-sacrificing, very often, you know, I think about my mother, my grandmother, and how much sacrifice they made for all of us, you also recognize that they were often tired. They were often uh, lacked rest and sleep. They were often burning the candle at both ends, and that's what you need to do two jobs, and you're studying, and you're a carer, and you're looking after our men and children, etc. And so the first thing I always believe is that you have to be healthy in and of yourself. And that's not selfish about your own primacy or that your health is more important than somebody else's. But you, we just have to have our own house in order and our own health and wellness together. There were long periods of time where we didn't have permission to even just look after ourselves physically and mentally. Even this conversation Brian and committing the whole season to talk about physical, mental, and spiritual wellness. I don't know we could have done this podcast five years ago, 10 years ago. And so certainly when our forebearers came through, you know, the chattel slavery system was actually meant to physically exploit our physical beings, break down and destroy our mental health and wellness, exclude us from self-improvement informal and informal education and mental illness 
is almost a structural instrument, an outcome of that chattel system. So when we have something as simple as a really good dialogue about how do you first start by looking after yourself, I mean, that's just a blessing right there. And it's one we have to see as an opportunity and embrace it as opposed to replicating the pattern of sacrificing your physical, mental self, even if it's for the service of others, even if it's for doing your job well, even if it's a requirement of difficult economic circumstances. And, you know, once I, um, now that I'm in a committed partnership, I've been married 24 years, I have two children, you know, I want to have a long, healthy life for them. I feel like my life is in service to others and I need to be a good role model and example. But that for me, particularly in the last five or six years, has really started with making sure my own health and wellness, physical, mental, and spiritual is in good shape. Now, I've never had any frailness in terms of my spiritual health and journey. You know, I feel like my connection with God, my purpose in life, I don't, I don't know, Brian, but it's always been clear for me what I Is that that glow that I'm seeing, Vivian? I don't the know. Glow. The glow. Is that the connection with God? Is that what that is? Okay. Listen, if, if God has a glow and I could put it in a bottle, you know, I would be rich for sure. <laughs> Many treasures. Territory beyond territory. Um, but yes. it is anointed in each of us. It's already there and mm. we just have to find mm. it for ourselves. And so that aspect of it has not been a, a, a challenge for me. I grew up, my father was a pastor. I grew up in a family with very clear Christian faith. My husband and I are both very committed Christians. And um, particularly now at this stage of my life and journey, you know, I can start with that as a foundation stone. But I've let the other aspects of my health and wellness go sometimes. You know, my physical health, particularly when I, you know, was struggling with polyps and my fertility in my earlier years, you know, in between during my service to our family and having our children and the journey of, of biological parenting, deciding what kind of parents we wanted to be, what path we wanted to be on, how that related to our godchildren and other parenting responsibilities. You know, I'm a big believer that biological children, and I love my boys, don't get me wrong, Brian, but they are, you know, they're the first and foremost in my eyes and Nick's eyes, but they're two in a billion in the world, right? They have to be responsible adults, positive contributors to the environments and communities they're in, they have to be able to stand on their own two feet and stand on their own reputation. So I'm always going to love them first and foremost, but I don't expect the world to, and they're going to make their own way. And you can parent and be a role model to many, many people um, in many ways. And, and that blended families, we now call it, and parenting and surrogacy, which is um, was a big part of my father in particular's upbringing, is very powerful. So when I talk about becoming a parent, it is really not because my biological children have any primacy. They're just the two children that happen to be gifted to Nick and me, but they're one of many that I feel and learn from as well as need to contribute to. But in the process of all of the, the fertility journey that women go on, having my children, my service to my profession and professional career, you know, I really let my physical health be a low priority. And, um, and when I was, I don't know, I'd say three or four years ago, you know, I wasn't health, as healthy and well as I, as I could have been. And if your physical health is poor and or you are fragmented, for example, with your working schedule or even sleep, you're just not getting enough rest, your mental health is also 
going to suffer. And so, you know, I, I start with defining it from my own foundation and just trying to be a better servant by being a better steward of my own health and wellness first. And that's just wisdom I didn't have when I was younger, Brian, I must tell you the truth. So that's, that's one aspect of the definition. The second is that it's like, it's a trifecta. You know, health and wellness includes your physical health, your mental health, and your spiritual health. You can define that many different ways. There are people of different physical shapes and sizes who probably over-focus on weight and physical presentation, but in understanding your blood work, understanding your um, genetic factors and risk, how we interconnect with each other um, is, is very important, particularly given the poor outcomes black people in particular, black and black and brown communities, but black people in particular have. And we saw that laid bare during COVID where the combination of fragile health status combined with the pandemic meant that our communities were more exposed. We were also more exposed because of the nature of the work we do, more frontline jobs, more caring professions. It meant that frontline workers and healthcare professionals, which are leaning professions for black and brown people. You know, ironically, we were on the front line of helping to serve and respond to the pandemic, but also on the front line of risk, as well as the front line of doubt about, for example, vaccine hesitancy and the lack of trust in system solutions for us. So I just think we've got to define it holistically, physically, spiritually, and mentally, and use the progress that we've made and the broader, more thoughtful and inclusive definitions of physical health, mental health, and spiritual health that I think maybe for the first time in open dialogue, and I mean dialogue outside the black community, where we can really engage with the healthcare system, our employers, our families, and make sure we're getting what we need on all three of those. And, and for sometimes historical reasons, other times context reasons, sometimes fear about insecurity at work. I just don't think we had permission to, you know, on the record, look after ourselves and our community as a top priority. Now, when you combine this with the data, Brian, so I've been talking about myself and my journey, my broader definition of it, but when you then cast your eye to the data and outcomes for Afro-Caribbean people in the US, the UK, and right around the world, our outcomes are so poor, but also poorly managed. And if they were better managed, we would get better outcomes. And we know how powerfully successful and positive our people and culture are when we're at our best. And so the permission and importance of putting real attention to our individual uh, well-being, physical, mental, and spiritual, but also our community's well-being, physical, mental, and spiritual. It's not our problem to fix. It's not just my problem. It is incumbent upon all of us to help each other, but also on the systems in which we operate, primarily work as well as healthcare systems to ask them for more. So you take me, who's done a healthcare, who's done a career, you know, in healthcare in a wide range of roles, and I have a massive interest in evidence-based systemic interventions and outcomes for marginalized and underrepresented people intersected with the fact that I am a black woman, you know, in a global world where that is not always seen or respected. And that those issues become really urgent for me. And so health and wellness, first and foremost, in your own mind, you've got to value it for yourself. You have to be willing to put on your own crown 
and where your own physical, mental, and spiritual health is a priority. I have to care about myself enough to prioritize it. And that actually is a bigger service to my children or bigger service to the people I care about. But secondly, mainstream society, our healthcare insurers, our delivery care networks, our payment systems, our financers have to also care about Afro-Caribbean and other people who have poor outcomes having better health outcomes because they understand that it contributes to workforce productivity. It contributes to a better match of skills with what people are good at. It includes to the global scaling and amplification of that. And if you work in a talent business or you work at an agency and you're on the creative arts like you do, you know people look after the talent because it's the multiplier for the whole idea and content, but also the scaling of it to, to, to build a great business and great reach and change the world through art and culture. And so I, I try and do two things with health and wellness. First, now look after myself a little bit better than we want one used to, and I would ask anyone to do that as the first step. And but secondly, get the environments in which I work and play and live to also see and value that it's in their own interest that black communities have better experience and get better outcomes. And that is just as much yes. for the mental and spiritual outcomes as it is for the physical outcomes. Now, Brian, we have to be careful because I'm not saying we should be dependent on or rely on or only accountable to mainstream systems for our own self-care and community care. No one will look after us better than ourselves. But what they have to appreciate is if the chattel slavery systems economics were dependent on the efficient management of, of, of black and other chattel labor, that's how the model worked. And that was destructive, particularly to our spiritual and mental health and optimizing but abusive of our physical health. We don't want a modern version of that today. And so they need to be aware that good outcomes in the black community in terms of health and wellness is gonna produce a more productive economy and a more uh, successful yes. outcomes for society, businesses, third sector, schools, right? All the places that where we, creative arts, all the places where we play. So, so that's where the two things are intersected. And the thing I love about today, you know, 2022 and why I have a lot of joy and optimism about the period we're in now is we are having this conversation which my mother's generation, your mother's generation, grandmother's generation did not have the permission to have, sometimes even within our own family, sometimes even within our own family, never mind in a way that we could reach so many people around the world. So I appreciate the opportunity to extend that reach because it's in everybody's interests that we are healthier in a physical, mental, and spiritual sense. It's a better outcome for all of society if those who are yes. most marginalized and have the worst outcomes do better. But you gotta prove it too. Yes. You, gotta, you know, yes. I'm a, I'm a, that's where the old McKinsey in me comes out. You gotta show the numbers and so forth. And yes. unfortunately, our health outcomes are so, historically have been so poor, it's actually very easy to show the case of how better health outcomes helps the individual helps um, organizations and helps society. The good news is the evidence does show that very easily. Mm -hmm. So we can back all of this up, mm -hmm. not just with goodwill and hope, but you can back it up with evidence for why your business, your organization, your community is gonna be better off. And that is, um, and that's a very good thing. 
When you have an opportunity to speak with Vivian, it's easy to get consumed with a myriad of questions. Her personality is so warm and welcoming, and she's as transparent as they come, which causes the questions to just flow. But before I got too deep into more of how her personal health and wellness has evolved over her life and career, I wanted Vivian to paint the picture of how she became who she is. Before the honors and partnerships, even becoming a dame, I asked her to take me back to the beginning. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I have lived in the UK for 26 years, but as my voice and accent show, I'm American 100%. I was born in Ohio. And like a lot of African-Americans during the migration at the beginning of this century, uh, my grandparents came up from, uh, you know, the cotton fields um, and plantations of Georgia and of Western North Carolina, so tobacco. So when reconstruction happened, it was also overlapping with a massive economic change, which was that cotton was being harvested in a more uh, machine-based, economically productive way. So you didn't need all of the labor that you needed before. And secondly, tobacco, at least in my family's journey, was not that productive a, a crop or experience. I'm sure there's long histories and different stories, but as it relates to the people who used to work the fields, we did what so many other black families on the East Coast did is they left their origin plantations during emancipation and reconstruction. They moved around Northern Georgia and North Carolina found tobacco but the exclusion from education, the overt racism, uh, you know, members of our family were lynched. It was a very antagonistic and stressful time. So they moved north for two reasons. One was to get away from the oppressive racist uh, environment that they were experiencing in the South and hope for a better life. And that hope was built on economic opportunity as the industrial revolution was taking hold. And there were wonderful industrial jobs in cities like Cleveland, Detroit, New York, Boston. And so that is why my family moved north. My grandparents met in North Carolina and they both moved to Cleveland with that in mind. And um, I think both of my grandparents had probably had third grade formal education, but were, uh, were and are still wise. My grandmother is 99 and she is, uh, she is wise and uh, happy, extremely healthy. You know, if you want a role model, for physical, mental, and spiritual health. You know, my Nana is the one. She is uh, such a gift. And the stories that she could tell, even if I could say, Brian, even becoming older and having aspects of your memory change, she would not use the phrase dementia, but having aspects of your memory change, she likes that she can go back into her deep memory. She likes that she can remember her childhood in ways that she couldn't before and really share with us the stories of her journey and uh, wisdom that she has. But they moved north for opportunity. My mother, who was born in the South, was educated in Cleveland, met my husband there, and they both graduated from Kent State University. So if my grandmother and grandfather were pioneers in terms of calling racism by its name and putting their family in a better position to have better outcomes, my father and my mother were both pioneers in the sense of education because they knew the only thing that would break the cycle of now not abject poverty, but blue collar work as your only choice. 
It's not that blue collar work isn't to be honored and respected. It's just that there weren't options for what black men could do or what my mother thought you could do. And my grandmother, she cleaned houses. She worked in the fields until she was a teenager and then she cleaned houses for 50 years. My grandfather worked in maintenance for GM and many other companies. And we are grateful for their learnings and service and the, both the day job he had as well as the construction business he had on the side, the hustle and entrepreneurism they showed, but they were doing all of that to secure an education for their children so that they would have more choices. And that's what my parents both had and also what they were committed to for us. So my mother was a teacher. She was, a primary, she was my first teacher, probably my last teacher. And she was a primary school teacher, but, and my father was in the military, which was his first career. And he originally wanted to be a musician and had a beautiful, both he and my paternal grandfather had beautiful, beautiful singing voices. Uh, my paternal grandfather was an actor um, and a creative, and my father had a professional quality singing voice that he gifted to the church as opposed to any other application. But he couldn't get a job in the creative arts and he couldn't get a job in his field of education. So he went into the military. And with that, we moved around the world. And so my brother was born in Texas. I was born in Ohio. But my youngest brother was born in Japan. We have spent many years living and working in the U.S., but we also spent time living and traveling around Japan, Asia, etc. We've lived all over the United States. He was stationed in Alaska. I lived in Montana, uh, no different than the family being in Texas, Montgomery, Alabama. And they retired from Boston and went on to his second career with Inland Revenue and the IRS, where he worked in equal opportunity and uh, an internal unit, the first internal unit in the IRS to look at um, basically self-reporting um, as the EEOC laws were coming into the US. And then his third career was as a pastor. And importantly for me, Brian, during my teenage years, which is so foundational for us, that period you know, from, I don't know, 9 to 18, 10 to 18. During that phase of our lives, in my life, he was a pastor. And so I always described myself as a preacher's daughter. And although he had many mm -hmm. careers, most influential probably to me was the time he spent in service as a pastor and my mother's time as a teacher and educator. And even today, my choices and our choices as their children are very influenced by that, by that context. There's the power and importance of a good education and how transformational it can be. And uh, secondly, the importance of equal opportunity for people in all of the contexts that they live and work. And that's equal for everybody, because if the world just has more opportunity for everyone, the least advantage will gain the most. Um, and that's why this notion of intersectional engagement and defining ourselves in, in, in broader ways is so important to me. So. If you know my family and you know my parents and you look at in my brothers, I've got an older brother, he's a couple years older than I am and a younger brother, but if you look at our lives, it, it's not a surprise because we are products of our environment. And I'm just always so grateful to have had both my dad and my mother uh, healthy and well for the majority of our lives. Uh, my mother is still uh, living and with us and to have had uh, just the stability of a true role model home uh, in which to grow up. And even though we lived 10 or 12 different places before I was 13, you know, the continuity of love and uh, consistency of schedule and focus 
on education was uh, consistent. Now, that focus was also needed because as I reflect back on their time, I think it was very challenging for my parents. I think they faced a lot of racism and interruptions and, and missed opportunities in their lives. And they were always fighting to make sure that we had that continuity. And I do mean fighting. My mother was, it still is, you know, she will jump on a protest bus in a hot minute. You know, they were not quiet about the civil rights movement. You know, they were much less, um, they were the first generation that were fluent in majority culture, can move easily between black culture and majority culture. And so they felt comfortable, but not uh, satisfied. And that, that uh, push for, you know, how do you actively change the law and change systems to improve outcomes for black people, improve outcomes for women, was very strong, particularly in my my mom, who, as I said, she is 78 <laughs> to 80 years old today, and uh, and she will still, you know, jump out there and protest um, and sign up for voters' rights and so forth. So by day we did our schoolwork; that was what was expected, and to behave well. By afternoon and evening, we were focusing on NCNW and NAACP pamphlets and now marches and and um, in just learning mm. from the sort of you know, what I thought of as suburban activism, but was activism. Um, and so they have had uh, you know, such a foundational role for me and, and my brothers. There's no doubt if you were to just read Vivian's bio, that surface level research would give you confirmation that her foundations through childhood were rock solid. Those stories of the strength and perseverance of her parents and grandparents, her respect for struggle and hard work, and the passion for activism she obviously inherited from her mother. All of those attributes have carried her on her journey to becoming the woman who has inspired and affected so many. But we wouldn't have this amazing woman without one very critical period during her education that pointed her compass toward everything she would achieve. My parents were first-generation college. They then created an environment where, you know, all of us as children to our, each to our potential would achieve as much as we could in education so that we would have even more opportunities in a bigger territory. That for me, combined with the fact that I we had so many different schools of varying quality and none of them had been, you know, before age 10 or 11 had been, been particularly enjoyable for me. They were partly because of the interruption, partly they just, I just wasn't on unlock. Interestingly, I think my brothers might've been closer to it, but they also had sports. You know, so they have this ability to make friends quickly through sports and that seemed to help them integrate into different schools and settings. At least that's how I saw it. I, but I, it was harder for me as the a girl middle child. And also I was extremely bookish. I really loved my books. I loved reading. I loved data analysis. I was interested in patterns. I was interested in interruptions. Um, I was interested in reading. I just was a geeky, geeky, geeky girl in my own mind. You know, it was just like the double afro puff, multi-denim, book carrying, super geek. In fact, the punishment for me was to lock me in the room without the books and then I would just be you know, <laughs> wailing at the door. And I was so moved later in my life when I was reading a, a, a book, it was, um, it's a dream to remember, it was Toni Morrison or Maya Angelou, but I think it was Maya Angelou was saying that she knew the world was different because she could see it in books. And it wasn't that I wanted to be someplace other than my family, I was very secure happy in my family, but I just knew the world was big. I knew it was broad. I knew America wasn't the only country on the earth. I knew that the world was brown. So that you could go to a middle school or a high school or a college that was majority white or mainstream, 
culture, but you knew the world actually wasn't that way. You knew the world was 50% women. And so I, one, had a huge amount of responsibility and focus on my education because it wasn't as sporty and I didn't have as many other things that I was good at. And two, as my family, you know, really spent the money they were probably saving for college for us, sending me to boarding school. And I just, it was a better choice for me. I went to Concord Academy in Massachusetts and it was a, it was a huge intellectual and academic unlock. It was a real, uh, really the first place where academic and intellectual freedom was valued. The school was, and is still is today, it's co-ed today. And it was co-ed when I attended it, but it was historically a women's school. So it was in this women's tradition. It was a progressive liberal environment. So it, this battle of ideas was really encouraged. And we also had a lot of fun, but it was work hard, play hard during that period. And then I went on to Harvard, which was, and still is a wonderful environment and a complete unlock. But it was again, the same thing. I worked really hard academically. I worked really hard at a uh, um, thing called Harvard Student Agencies Building Businesses. Still went to church with my parents on Sundays. I had a lot of fun, you know, hung out quite a bit um, in college. I was glad there's no internet then. I probably wouldn't be sitting here today if there had been. And, and it meant that by the time I finished university, my cup overfloweth is how I think about it now. I was full with the richness of the education I'd had, the breadth of experiences I'd had, my confidence and ability to navigate what we call majority culture. I'd had lots of opportunities but I felt flat. I felt, you know, what we would now know today is probably mentally and spiritually empty. Even though I was at a, I was young, I had a huge number of academic opportunities, but I just felt alien and unenergized in that environment. And I knew what the issue was. The environments were, they were hyper-majority pressure cookers, you know, and, and I knew that that wasn't all I was, even if I could be successful in that environment. So when I was in my senior year of university, I made a very conscious decision not to get a traditional job. Now, I did get an offer from a consulting company and I deferred it, but I wanted to do something that was nourative, restorative, and that would fill in some of the things that I was missing. And so what was I missing? I was missing a global perspective. The United States is a wonderful country, culture, and has a unique responsibility in the world, but I wanted to see it from the outside again, as I had when I was younger. I've never worked as an adult, lived and worked in a majority brown or black culture. And in the same way that you can be immersed in American mainstream culture, I could be immersed in Jamaican or Brazilian or Nigerian culture. And so I wanted to do, live and work in a black culture. I wanted to be of service and build something, you know, like microfinance, build a, you know, plant some tomatoes and build a business or get some cloth and make a sewing machine, etc. So I was going to do this business thing. And uh, because you need secure job and income security, then as now is the anchor, so many things that go well or not in families. Vivian's desire to be immersed in a black culture and really get her hands dirty through service and communities led her to make a very personal and pivotal decision about her future and without the consult of her family, proving even then she had the courage to blaze her own path. I applied to the Peace Corps. I applied in secret from my parents um, and those what I, were my criteria. So 
I got assigned, of course, to, um, and I also wanted to learn French. I just thought it would be good to be able to speak another language well, like French or Spanish or something, you know. So I didn't go into the Peace Corps for noble reasons, Brian. I went in because I just thought if I don't do something different, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm not gonna be well. I can't continue the way I have in this, you know, hyper-majority pressure cooker. Even if I can be successful in that environment, there are other modes, there are other skill sets, there's other sides to the world, there's other sides to me. And secondly, you know, the service that you can affect with your own service, you know, personally, individually showing up to work and, and work alongside people, shoulder to shoulder, that physical work is also very, um, is very restorative. And so I was fortunate that I got, you know, like three out of the four things I was looking for. They assigned me to Senegal, which is in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so it was black culture in which to live and work, um, tick. It is, uh, at least in its education and um, Francophone heritage, French speaking. Although at village level, they actually speak Wolof or Serer or one of the other seven or nine languages in Senegal. But I didn't know that then, Brian. I thought I was going to be speaking French. And fortunately, the, the doctors and nurses I worked with did speak French. But to speak French, you had to have an education. And most of the rural people I lived and worked with didn't have a formal education. But, you know, look, I just was going based on what I saw on the tin, on the, on the box, as they say, in the UK. And one was that it was in Sub-Saharan Africa, so a, a black African culture, tick. Two, it was Francophone um, um, heritage, and so French speaking in many ways, and I may have the opportunity to work on French, tick. And it would give me the opportunity to go for two or three years of frontline service of being a directly a volunteer and doing that. And so the thing it didn't have was this microfinance and building a business. They didn't have any programs like that that were available to me. And so they assigned me to the healthcare program. So if we now look back on that chance, choice that I didn't choose, you know, I was assigned to the healthcare program. I think I was the first woman assigned to the program. So they put me in the midwifery obstetrics training. And there I was, you know, three, four months after graduating, you know, from a degree with sociology, government, economics from Harvard. Three months later, I'm living on Bruce in a village with no electricity or running water. Um, the a guest of the wonderful uh, family. Um, Senegal is probably 95, 99% Muslim. So I was living in a polygamous family of the local imam his guest and um, student for two or three years and had my own little hut as a single woman behind the hut of the third wife and working as a midwife in a clinic that had none of the resources that it needed. And because Brian, I was so naive and so raw in my mental fragility, but also in my knowledge of where I was going to live and work, you know, I didn't even fully realize that most babies were born at home. You know, my grandmother was born in her own house. My mother was born in her house. You know, our generation and my parents' generation, some of the first ones born in hospitals, as in rural cultures all over the world. So we were waiting at the hospitals for these mothers and children to come, and you'd only get people who were in distress, you know, who'd been in labor, real acute distress for two or three days. And it was because the Saj 
the midwife at home in the family, you know, was the first port of call and where most children were born. So that one choice, which really was me trying to move away from, flee is too strong a word, but to consciously move away from and broaden my aperture to the world's breadth, knowing that it's broader than the narrow aperture that I had from Concord and Harvard. I, I valued that. I still value that. I sit on the board of Harvard University today and, and, and very proud of the organization that existed then and is now and, and want to make it better and provide more opportunities, particularly for those who haven't historically had opportunities such an excellent education. I honor that. But at age 21, Brian, I needed out. I needed a different, broader perspective on the world and I needed it urgently. And so the Peace Corps provided really those two things for me. It gave me my calling into healthcare as an industry and profession, which I didn't ask for. I wanted microfinance and instead I got midwife and birth and babies, but it has been a pivot stone for what I've come to do with my life and work. And it also gave me the mental and physical rest, resilience, reset that I needed at that time. The journey of life is one of discovery for all of us. Many of us discover ourselves through years of trials and mistakes, and only then do we realize what it is that will feed our passions. Vivian knew early on that the world of service was calling her, and without knowing what the right decision would be, she simply followed the calling that led her to her pivot stone. That pivot opened the pathway to her future career and in some ways even allowed her to begin to focus on her personal health and wellness, maybe for the first time, while beginning her amazing journey into service. The rest of Vivian's story takes us through the details of what she was experiencing behind the scenes of her path, from joining McKinsey and balancing her career and personal life, to dealing with being in leadership as an American woman of color in the healthcare and advisory space. We hear about these experiences and the trade-offs she's encountered with every big opportunity in part two with Dame Vivian Hart. This episode of Flowers and Crowns is brought to you by McKinsey & Company. McKinsey is a global management consulting firm committed to helping organizations realize sustainable, inclusive growth. They work with clients across the private, public, and social sector to solve complex problems and create positive change for all their stakeholders. They combine bold strategies and transformative technologies to help organizations innovate and more sustainably achieve lasting gains in performance and build workforces that will thrive for this generation and the next. Flowers and Crowns is hosted by me, Brian Lattimore, and produced by MMWM and Circle Audio Productions. Flowers and Crowns is a community and we want you to be a part of it. To hear more from this episode and to receive updates on what's next from Flowers and Crowns, please visit us at flowersandcrowns.xyz and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for spending your time with us.